Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, October 5th, 2017, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. Acclaimed Civil War historians John F. Marzalik, Craig L. Simons, and Harold Holzer uncover the story of Union General Philip H. Sheridan's legendary 1864 ride. Thank you, Louise, and uh, <clears throat> welcome to John and Craig, and thanks to all of you for joining the three of us for, I guess, the beginning of another season of uh, talks on Civil War topics. Um, We're so grateful for your support as we continue to explore um, issues large and small that relate to the Civil War. For better or for worse, the war has certainly been back in the news lately, not so much um, over why it was fought, because that's pretty settled by now, but how it's remembered. Um, And among the heroes occupying pedestals, um, a subject that is specifically in the news, is this man, uh, Little Phil, as he was called in the day, um, and who is honored, Phil Sheridan is, with statues uh, in several places, including this one in Washington, D.C., by Guttum Borglum, who did Mount Rushmore, as you may know, and this one uh, by Thomas Ball, which sits in front of our own state capitol in Albany. Um, honored for his Civil War exploits, the most famous of which we will talk about tonight. tonight. Not, presumably, for saying the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And if we have time, we'll talk about how that inflects memory, because there have been calls uh, in, from some members of the state legislature to take this down. Um, what we're here to explore is what Phil Sheridan did at the Battle of Cedar Creek, Virginia, uh, on October 19th, 1864. It caused a media sensation and transformed this small, skinny guy into a giant hero overnight. Um, and all he did, you could say, if you want to be cynical about it, was ride his horse a few miles from one spot to another. Uh, He didn't fight any Confederates along the way. He didn't shoot his gun. And we will get to that. Uh, Because I've written this before, and I'll say it again. No incident of the Civil War, none, I think, captured popular imagination in journalism, in literature, in art, than Sheridan's Ride. Um, And none has sort of been more completely erased in the 20th century. So um, let's, let's dispose of Sheridan, because we need, we need to at least set him up and uh, have you understand who he is. So let's talk about this fellow. Who wants to start and tell us what we know about Phil? Oh, I guess you I, I would. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to talk. That gesture about indicated that you were going to I thought, I, I was going to, we were talking before and... Uh, Craig is in charge of maps, so we're going to, he's going to explain to you exactly what, what happened. But let's just say a couple of things about uh, Phil Sheridan. Phil Sheridan was only five feet five inches tall, uh, 
And he was, and he, as Harold pointed out, he was small. I mean, he looked small, but he had this look about him that, that, that gave the impression that you better listen to what he's saying because he'll, he'll take care of you. In fact, uh, he, when he was at West Point, he was thrown out of the academy for a year uh, because of fighting. He got into several battles. And what's interesting, I think, about Sheridan, maybe more than, than anything else, is that this man plays a role in the Civil War, in this important war, unlike that of any other person. He, I think it can be said about him that, that Phil Sheridan was maybe the first person in the Civil War to take both infantry and, and cavalry and use them together in an, in an incredibly effective, an effective way. And maybe the final thing we should say is that this is a man who was not a cavalryman at all. He was an infantryman. Spent most of his time in the Civil War in the infantry, but once he got in the cavalry, he got in the cavalry. So, Craig, situate him. I mean, where is he from? That's, well, that's not an point. easy question to answer, right? Yes. There is some mystery uh, about <laughs> where exactly he's from. He was born, according to the official record, he was born in Albany, New York, in 1831 in March. Um, but there were a lot of people who speculated that was incorrect because he was born soon after his parents emigrated, and there are those who argue that he was not only born before they immigrated, he may have been born either in County Cavan, uh, Ireland, or even on the ship on the way across. Now, he downplayed this all of his life, and when he, afterward, when the war was long over and he was famous and made a trip to Ireland, he pretended not to know where, I don't know where my family was from. I'm not really sure, Meath or somewhere, I don't. He downplayed it, perhaps, critics suggest, because being an Irishman in the 19th century was not a path to success. And so he didn't want people to know that he had been born in Ireland. But officially, and as far as most historians know, in fact, he was born in Albany, New York, we think. But there are still skeptics who say Which is why the statue was commissioned, because he had claimed Albany heritage. By the way, the man who took this picture, Matthew Brady, um, was either born in yeah. Albany, in upstate New York or in Ireland. Uh, it also was fudged. Well, just as a- One of the interesting things, too, that, that kind of ties into what's been said, Sheridan was one of these people who seemed to know all the right people. And he knew all the important generals uh, of the Civil War. In fact, he was born in a little town in, well, well, maybe. well maybe, but there's a big statue of him at, in Somerset, Ohio. Oh, you're the, situating him in Ohio. In Ohio. That's, well, a man this of is, many regions. This is where, where the house that he allegedly lived in and his family allegedly lived in is, is, still, is still very much, uh, very much there. But the important thing is there was another general that lived not too far from him, a fellow by the name of William Tecumseh Sherman. They didn't know each other, but they got to know each other during the war, and both of them made the most they could out of that relationship. So let me read one wonderful Lincoln quote. Hmm. Lincoln said he was a brown, chunky little chap with a long body, short legs, not long enough, and not long, not a, sorry, short legs, not enough neck to hang him, <laughs> and such long arms that if his ankles itch, he can scratch them without stooping. 
That's really the pot calling the kettle black. As if, if Lincoln thinks someone looks odd, he must have been odd looking. Just a little bit about his early training. You mentioned West Point. Where else was he before the war? Mexico? Yes? Well, he, he is a West Point graduate, and that ties in with the whole birth question. Well, too, too early for was, Mexico. If he was born in, in 31 and graduated yeah. in 53 at yeah. 22 after being a year out and starting late, I mean, there's, there's time perhaps missing in there, but we do know that he was a, a West Point graduate, and he did go into the cavalry. He was not a particularly great student. The really great students went into engineering. The, the indifferent students went into uh, infantry, and the poor students went into the cavalry. That's where the not-so-bright people went. And he was serving with a regiment in, I'm going to say this right for Harold's sake, the Willamette Valley in Washington State, which is the source of the Pinot Noir that Harold drinks. That's why I had to say it right. Um, Washington Territory. When the war broke out. Oregon Territory. Yeah. So right away, I mean, one of the things, I have a colleague uh, that still teaches at the Naval Academy who used to tell his students, still does for all I know, that the most important factor that determines whether you will make flag rank has already happened, and that's your birthday. Mm-hmm. If you are born at a time when about eight, nine, ten years into your professional career, a major war breaks out, You've got it made. And that's, that's what happened to him. I mean, being in the class of 1853 with John M. Schofield, James B. McPherson, John Bill Hood, and others, all of whom became generals in the Civil War, he was situated in that respect. Uh, when the war broke out, he was a captain, right? Am I mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. And within two years, he's a major general. Yeah. So let's, let's uh, well, we, don't, we talked about Lincoln calling him a chunky little man. So this, this is... Uh, a fellow who was first impressed by, uh, by Sheridan when others weren't. And John has written the best biography of General Henry, ha- uh, Henry Wager Halleck. It's, I ruined my joke. It's also the only biography of Henry Halleck. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it still worked. Yes, so tell us what this attraction was. Halleck didn't like Grant particularly. He didn't like anybody particularly. He didn't, no. One of the things about Halleck is Halleck believed very strongly that that to be a good general, to be a good soldier, you really had to be good at paperwork, to the point that he even instructed some of his subordinates how they should fold the letters that they, that they sent to him. And what happened, what happened here is uh, Halleck shows up in Missouri, in the Missouri area, to take the place of John C. Fremont. Fremont is involved in all sorts of corruption and all sorts of all sorts of, of difficulties. So Halleck takes over and he looks around who's gonna do the auditing to check this guy to find out all the problems. And who does he choose? Of all people, makes no sense at all, he chooses Phil Sheridan. Well doggone if Phil Sheridan doesn't do a heck of a job. He finds all the problems. He, he makes sure that people are prosecuted. Later on, when the, some, of the, uh, some of the soldiers, some of the officers in, the, in, in his command, in, the, in the, uh, uh, Halleck's command, attempt to steal horses and then get him as the quartermaster of that unit to pay for the horses, and he refuses, even refuses uh, Custer, George Armstrong Custer. But in any case, Halleck is just impressed as anything. This guy really knows his stuff. So from that period on, he is a big supporter of, Sher- of, of, of Sheridan. But it's completely counterintuitive because it's, Sheridan doesn't make his bones as a paper folder. He makes his bones in action. And that's, that's right, exactly. 
But Craig, you do, the, well, let's do a little bit about this relationship. Well, we, we were going to go into some of uh, the early. Sheridan's command before Cedar Creek. And we want to focus on Cedar Creek and the valley eventually. That's the, the point of Sheridan's ride. But, but how does he position himself to get there? And he seems to be in a lot of places where big events are taking yeah. place. Battle yeah. Chickamauga is one of those. Uh, we got, uh, Harold has him paired with Longstreet here, James Longstreet, who, who broke through uh, the defensive line, and Sheridan played a role. Sheridan tried to rally the troops, tried to plug the hole. He found out that Thomas was making a stand on Snodgrass Hill. You know, Thomas becomes the rock of Chickamauga for this stand. And, and Sheridan tries to fight his way back to him, but by then it, it's too late. The army's already on the road flooding north. So Sheridan does uh, get some credit uh, at the time for at least uh, not being completely panicked, as so many other generals were during the Chickamauga campaign. Well, I think, too, the other interesting thing is that after the war, when uh, Sheridan writes his memoirs, he takes credit for everything, yeah. whether he was involved in it or not. Including and that, this, right? And, uh, exactly, including And here's yeah. Bragg, one of the people he chases off various... Yeah, Braxton Bragg, uh, again, paired with Sheridan here, had a reputation, interestingly enough, had a reputation of being the ugliest man in the Confederacy. <laughs> I don't see it in the slide. He must have had a really good photographer. But he was a very unpopular man, and maybe his personality showed through when you confronted him. But he was a very unpopular Confederate general, and Sheridan was among those in Thomas's command who charged uh, Missionary Ridge without orders. I mean, originally Grant's idea yeah. was, well, you know, we'll faint toward the center, and that will, you know, draw their attention, and then we'll attack someplace else. But the the soldiers conducting the feint got to the bottom of the hill and looked up and said, this is a bad place to be, and started up pretty much on their own. Sheridan was part of that, and Bragg, his army took, took flight yeah. because he had, their morale was in, in the bottom because his personality was so negative. So Sheridan won that match. So here's some of the, uh, the mountainous terrain that Sheridan helped overcome and gave himself a lot of credit for overcoming and and now we're going to pair him with uh, another little guy who was pretty tough, Ulysses S. Grant, mm. and the Overland Campaign. So let's, who wants to tell us a little bit about uh, Sheridan's record during Grant's first big offensive uh, well, as a Union commander? Let Craig make sure he has enough energy to handle the maps. Well, let me right. see if I can do that. All right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But, but uh, the, the, the relationship between Grant and, and, and Sheridan is fascinating. Because when Grant gets the overall command and he moves into the an area and he's looking at the, at the Virginia campaign, there are four different districts in that area, four different armies under different commanders. And the only one who could command all four of them at the same time was a fellow named Henry Wager Halleck. And he didn't like the command, so that, that was, not a, was not an issue. But you had a situation where Grant says, we've got to do something here. We've got to bring all these four districts together. And so he thinks that, I'd, he, Grant says, I'd like to have General Franklin to be commander of, of all of these areas. That doesn't work out. Then Grant says, well, maybe we could take George Meade. And Lincoln doesn't like that because of the fact that if that happens, it's going to look as though Meade is being punished for not accomplishing what he, what he should have accomplished. So Grant finally says, what about this little guy, Sheridan, 33 years old? Stanton, the Secretary of War, is opposed to it completely. He says, he's just too young. 
So what they do is they appoint, as commander of this district, a fellow by the name of David Hunter, another general. He's the overall commander, but Sheridan becomes the field commander. He actually runs things. Hunter is so upset that this happens that he quits. And everybody goes, oh, thank God that he quit. <laughs> so Sheridan becomes commander of this whole district, and this sets the stage then for you know, what's going to happen later. So as we look at Jeb Stewart, who is sort of an analog to, uh, to Sheridan, by the way, who was under 30 yes. when he was killed. So, right. you know, they were young yeah. then. Yep. I think what we need to do to, before we get to the big events is let's talk about what a cavalry unit is supposed to accomplish in the unfolding battles of the Civil War. We know pretty much what infantry is supposed to do. Thanks to Craig, we know what the Navy thought they were supposed to do. But what about cavalry? Well, uh, cavalry was a young man's game, obviously. There are two young men uh, who look a bit older than they actually are because yeah. of the facial hair. Um, <laughs> Jeb Stewart, James Ewell Brown Stewart, grew that beard partly because he, he looked so young he couldn't get uh, troops to take him seriously unless he grew that bushy beard. The cavalry's job was primarily to be the eyes and ears of the Army. They're supposed to be in a day when you don't have satellite reconnaissance They will spread out through the countryside, find out where the enemy is, feel the enemy, as the phrase goes. In other words, test them. Is this a strong unit or just a scouting party? And then bring that information back to the general in command so the general in command of the infantry can make a decision about where he's going to march his men and what he's going to try to do. So they are a scouting patrol. If you win a battle, then they can pursue the fleeing infantry, although that happens far less often than most cavalry commanders would like it to have done. So they're primarily a reconnaissance force. Now, what they would love to do is draw that saber and charge another <laughs> cavalry unit head-to-head. It seldom happened. It happened east of Gettysburg in, in the last day of the Battle of Gettysburg in a great cavalry battle. But it happened twice uh, when Sheridan was commanding Grant's and Meade's cavalry during the Overland Campaign. It happened at, at places with little names like Hawes Shop. We were talking about Hawes Shop earlier. Uh, and most notably at the Battle of Yellow Tavern. And Sheridan had, had said to Meade, if you will turn me loose, I can whip Jeb Stewart. Well, of course, this is what he'd love to do. Meade told Grant, and Grant said, well, he usually knows what he's talking about. Let's give him a chance to try it. And so Sheridan went after Jeb Stewart. And actually, if you measure out the several campaigns in which they fronted, confronted one another, it's kind of a draw. It's pretty evenly matched. But in one of those battles, the Battle of Yellow Tavern, uh, Jeb Stewart was mortally wounded and subsequently died. So that in the public mind, Sheridan had whipped Stewart, had killed Stewart. And finally, the Union cavalry, which had been subordinate to Confederate cavalry qualitatively throughout the entire war, finally the Union cavalry had, had proved itself by winning the Battle of Yellow Tavern. It's the only battle Sheridan's going to win in command of the cavalry, but it does a lot to establish his bona fides as an effective field commander. He fights one more battle with Jeb Stewart's uh, uh, replacement, Wade Hampton, at the Battle of Trevelyan Station, uh, which was the largest cavalry battle of the Civil War. But again, it's a drawn battle. Both sides claim victory. In his memoirs, uh, Sheridan says, oh, tremendous victory. I I was great. But not so much. Haven't haven't some military historians made the case that throughout this campaign, Sheridan was 
showboating, that he was depriving Grant of his eyes and ears. He's a cavalry commander. Of course right. he's showboating. Okay. <laughs> no, that's what we need to know. And you can look at Stuart, famous for that plumed hat that he has in his hat. lap yeah. there. But what's interesting, too, is that when Sheridan first came into, into this valley area to support Grant and all, he was not a happy camper because he had an answer to George Meade, and Meade wanted him to be what uh, Craig just talked about, the typical cavalry commander screening and you know all the rest. And then, of course, the famous episode with Grant, when Grant says to me, better let him go. He usually knows what he's doing. And that's when he really loses, uh, uh, lets, lets Sheridan get loose, actually, and start doing some of the things that will lead to the period we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So during this period, there are cavalry raids. I mean, mm-hmm. the Valley and Washington, Jubal Early conducts a raid on Washington. So the cavalry is fierce, not as dangerous as you know, a full army marching, but they... Well, we'll talk about the Jubal Early's raid when we get to the valley, because that's not really a cavalry raid. That's an infantry raid. Right. But, yeah, that's... But yeah. The valley is a key element. So we get to the moment um, where this famous event takes place, and this is a, a sketch by an artist we have failed to identify. It may be woad, it may not be, but it looks like it's a life approximation of this moment. Let's, let's talk about October 1864, um, what's going on. And at this moment, since I'm more of a GPS kind of guy than a map guy, oh. and Craig loves maps. Loves maps. I'm going to point, it's give this in. This, you see this thing here? Yeah. This is the, po- this is the My pointer. My little pointer. So tell All us right. what's happening all right. Dale made a big are. point to me today. He says, when you talk about maps, don't go left flank, right flank, and people aren't going to know what you're talking about. This <laughs> is the Shenandoah Valley. It runs, as you can see, from lower left to upper right, uh, like a rifle aimed at, at Washington, D.C. And the Confederacy used the valley throughout the war to threaten Washington, particularly when other areas were under duress. If you could mount a realistic threat, down the valley. Now, this phrasing is going to bother you. Down the valley must be this way because it's down on the map. But the rivers all flow northward. There's the Shenandoah River flowing into uh, the Potomac. So when you go down the valley, you're going up on the map. Everybody with me on that? Yeah. Okay. Launching a threat down the valley into Washington would cause the Union decision makers to panic and withdraw their troops from the threatened area to protect the capital. So this was a gambit that was used again and again by the Confederacy. It was used in 1862 by Stonewall Jackson, Jackson's famous Valley Campaign. It was used in 1863 by John Singleton Mosby. Mosby's Confederacy encompassed this area. The gray ghost of the Confederacy, he would launch these attacks down the valley. And it was used again in May of 1864 by Jubal Early in this raid that Harold was just talking about. Jubal Early had this force, and he went all the way down the valley, crossed the Potomac, came in toward Washington, go over here someplace, uh, and actually threatened the Capitol in 1864. Well, in 1864, presidential election year, a lot of Northerners thought, well, we're winning this thing, aren't we? And here comes a Confederate force on the outskirts of Washington. Abraham Lincoln actually got shot at at Fort Stevens on, uh, on what is now Georgia Avenue all within, inside the District of Columbia. So this threat of the valley was always there. And when Grant finally turns to Sheridan and says, look, wipe that out. Get rid of that 
threat that has regularly attacked us. I want you to move into the valley and take it over, destroy whatever Confederate forces are there, and ruin it so badly that, as the saying goes, if a crow were to fly from one end to the other of the Shenandoah Valley, he would have to take his own supplies with him because there'd be nothing there to eat. Including capturing and transplanting enslaved people. Everything. Burn the barns, burn the houses, burn the crops, take the animals or kill the animals, take the slaves, the Negroes, as they're phrased in in the order, away so that they can't plant any more crops for next year. Lay it. We wanted it to make it a barren waste. Right. A barren waste. They called the burning. Yeah. 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 And in fact, this area right here was an area called, you can see perhaps you can read it from the back, called the burning in September and early October of 1864, uh, where Sheridan took his troops in there and they just, they did a Sherman on it. I heard about that. i give this back to you. But but I think the important thing that we talked about before, the only thing I know about maps is this one thing, so I'm going to get it in. Uh, But actually, the so-called burning only took place in a small part of the Shenandoah Valley. As as Craig was pointing out, it's it's a pretty decent-sized area. But it's only the top, I guess we could call it. Yeah, this, top. yeah, yeah. At the bottom. The, the top bottom. is at the, the bottom. Yeah, right. Which is the top. Which is the top. Yeah. You make a really important point that, uh, among many, uh, that this is campaign season. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, Sherman has relieved some of the political pressure. John would probably argue all of the political pressure, as a Sherman biographer, by capturing Atlanta on the first of September, but. This is still a highly contested election. And as we go toward October, the news is just coming in that the Kearsarge has has, uh, sunk the Alabama off the coast of France. But these battles all have political consequences. And do you want to just do Third Winchester for a moment? Tell us about that. Well, basically, but you want to do that? Well, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. All right, Third Winchester. You're the map man. Come on. I'm not getting up again. You can come back for the map. Here's, here, whoops, where's my kind? Where's your thing? Here's Winchester, right here. Right, right. Now, Winchester is located in a critical space in the valley. You see this Massanutten Mountain right here? I used to tell my students, and they named that because it's a great big Massanutten. But what it does is divide the valley in half. You see there's a river on this side and a river on this side, both flowing north, the north fork, south fork, both going in this direction. But what the Confederates could do is they'd come around to this. If the Federals came down this way, they would come around and hide over here. If the Federals came down this way, they would go around and hide over here. They just ran them in circles. Jackson, Stonewall Jackson, kind of invented this tactic, but it was used by Mosby and it was used by Early. But what that did was make some of these cities through here the scene of many, many battles. Winchester actually had three significant battles fought for Winchester. And the third battle of Winchester was September 19th. And then the Battle of Fisher's Hill, right here, on September 21st and 22nd. So here's Sheridan working his way down the valley from Winchester down to Fisher's Hill. And then he goes further down here, up, and he up, starts up the valley. down. He goes up, up on this down map. Thank you. I did it myself. <laughs> to burn this area out. And by this time, uh, Jubal Early has not only angry. I mean, obviously, everybody's in the Confederacy is angry about this. But he's been reinforced. So he's going to counterattack. And Sheridan doesn't expect this. Now we're back. So now Uh, how does Sheridan wind up 
in Winchester in mid-October? Because that's where he's put his headquarters. Yeah. Does he believe that the fighting is over? He is yeah. suffering from uh, guerrilla attacks on his lines of supply. He's got yeah. the army concentrated around Cedar Creek, but he leaves it behind and takes a detachment and goes back to oversee uh, the wagon trains. And their wagon trains, as many as 500 wagons, working their way up southward, up the valley, bringing the supplies and the food and the ammunition his army needs to survive. And, and they're being savage. They're being attacked by bushwhackers. Some of these are actual members of the Confederate cavalry. Some of them are just irregulars, bushwhackers, whatever you want to call them. And, and he starts hanging them. You know, he picks out seven guys and says, all right, you guys are all criminals, and hangs them. And then the Confederates say, well, we're going to hang seven prisoners of war. So this, it gets pretty ugly. But he's back there overseeing the supply lines coming down to Cedar Creek, and he's asleep there on the night of the 18th-19th right. of October. When? when? And then the uh, crack of dawn, he's awakened, right, by guns. By, yes. And he says, I'm just going to go back to sleep. <laughs> Which he does, right? He tries to go back to sleep, and the guns get louder. He doesn't really begin to rouse himself till, is it mid-morning? Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, and not by my standards, it's not been morning because that's noon. But by his standards, <laughs> it's, by his, it's probably nine thirty or so. So fact, he's also the guy when uh, after going into the future when uh, when Dana, the famous newspaper man, comes to give him his latest promotion, he's sleeping, and so they he said, "I don't want to talk to the guy." Well, they get him up. He gets the great promotion, goes back to bed. So Sheridan doesn't worry too much about, about this kind of thing. Right? But ultimately, ultimately, the noise um, in, uh, inspires him to ride up the valley to the south, right, 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 to find out what's going on. Right. Yes. How, and I think now is the time we discuss this moment of personal... Glory. Glory. Give me one minute on Jubal Early first, if we can. Because right. one of the reasons he's so surprised is he has whipped Jubal Early. He whipped him at Winchester. He whipped him at right. Fisher's Hill. He's driven him all the way out of the valley. He thinks he's in he's control in. now. Yeah. Right? And Jubal Early gets these reinforcements and strikes at dawn by surprise. That's one reason, perhaps, why he goes back to sleep. He's, oh, some skirmishing. How serious right. can this be? I've whipped this guy. But he's been reinforced, and because of the surprise circumstances... They actually run through the camp. They capture the Union camp. And if they had pressed, continued to press, yeah. he might have disorganized that army entirely, disorganized it quite a bit. But they stopped to loot the camp. To loot the camp. Yeah, because the, camp. the burning had destroyed so right. much stuff. Right. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They don't have blankets. They don't have ammunition. They don't have. So they stop and they're looting the camps while this is going right. on. So, yeah. so, now, so, now, so now, John, 9 o'clock, 9.30, he begins. To ride how far and what happens along the way. Yeah, this is, this is the interesting thing. This will, this will end up with Harold reading you some of this poetry that, that comes out of this, the famous, famous poetry. But that's basically what happens. Sheridan gets on his horse and he starts riding back towards Cedar Creek. And we're now, looking at uh, the yeah, Harper's Weekly Harper's cover. Oh, there we are. Yeah, there we go. So, he's, he's, so he starts riding and the closer he gets, the louder the sound becomes. He's getting closer to a battle, obviously. And then he starts running into Union soldiers who are rushing away from that battlefield. And this is where it it really becomes questionable and and argumentative and all. 
But what Sheridan does is he basically says to those soldiers, and he uses some language that we wouldn't want to use in mixed company, but he basically says, look, you people turn around and get back and, and meet this enemy. Now, the, the thing is, is that despite the fact that Sheridan had whipped Jubal early, as, as, as Craig pointed out, he told the second in command when he left to go, uh, to go north uh, for, the, for, the, uh, for, a, for a meeting that dig in because you never know what might happen. Well, the guy didn't dig in, and so the, the, the Confederate attack happens, scatters the Union troops. Sheridan comes, moving south. He, he, he moves his troops back into position, and he wins the battle. Well, that's right. Don't, turn, don't turn the battle. Don't turn, not yet. No, okay. too soon. And we have to give some credit, I think, to a living creature who became yeah. almost as Thank famous you. as General Sheridan. Yes. And oh, that's, yes. that's yes. this guy here. Do you want to tell well, us I about... Mean, I, mean, I can't believe John didn't mention the, the horse. John's not the a horse. cavalry... He's not a cavalry person. Is named yeah. for... A town in Mississippi. Of right. course it of would course be. Of course it would be. Where else would it be? Rienzi. There's actually a town in Mississippi. It's not much of a town any longer. Wasn't much of a town then. But it was a, it was a time when Sheridan, who had been part of, of Halleck's army in the, in the Corinth campaign had gotten his horse from somebody in the area and named it after this particular town. And I think Harold, what Harold is getting at, when he does get to read, dramatically read parts of this poem... John's doing a big build-up for this poem. This is, this is going to be incredible. I mean, you will, you, will, you will charge the stage and carry Harold off on your shoulders. That would be incredible. It but, may be, by the way, is, that Rienzi is... is among the three most popular horses of the war. It's, everybody knows Traveler, yep. which is Robert E. Lee's horse. Little Sorrel, Little Sorrel. Jackson. Stonewall Jackson's horse, and Rienzi. Yeah. Those are the three big famous horses of the war. That's right. But this was the only one of the three that was displayed in New York City. Um, I think it's Staten Island or some army barracks. He was, was they, there for 60, 70 them? years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he didn't live. He was stuffed. He's stuffed, yeah. So was... <laughs> So but, is Jackson's horse. It seems so, to be the yeah, way so they I, did it. I, I, I did an interview. It's in a taxidermist bounty. The yeah, way. that's exactly right. But the, the important, the important thing is, is that if you read that poem, which makes Sheridan a, as famous as he possibly could be, I suppose, which helps Lincoln in the election, the poem actually says more about the horse than it says right. about Sheridan. But well, the horse did all the work. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> he was. So he's riding south, up the valley. He's importuning these men who want to go the other way to join him. As he puts it in his memoirs, some do, some don't. don't. He's not waiting. He he tells a story, which I I think is funny. I think it's funny when you read it, so I'll try. He was halted at Newtown, and he told this story about a momentary pause. I met a chaplain. (laughs) digging his heels into the sides of his jaded horse, making for the rear with all possible speed. I drew up for an instant and inquired of him how matters were going at the front. He replied, everything is lost, but all will be right when you get there. And notwithstanding this expression of confidence in me, he at once resumed his breathless (laughs) pace to the rear. (laughs) But Sheridan, he headed into the firestorm, right? And... What did the side of him actually do? What did he do when he got, 
before we get to the poem, yeah. which are building up much too much for no, my taste. This is, this what did he much. actually accomplish? And, and, and Craig points out, maybe had the Confederates taken up a strong defensive position rather than yeah. satisfied their hunger, which is understandable. They might not have been taken by such well, surprise. Well, th- I think there's two, two, two issues because some historians will argue that even before Sheridan got there, his second in command, whose name escapes me, do you remember? Horatio Wright. Right, exactly. Right. right. It was Horatio right. Wright. It was right. <laughs> but that he had already formed the, the Union troops in a defense position and that, that Sheridan actually just helped with this. Others say no, that what he did by his display of courage and by showing up when he did, he turned the tide of the battle. He turned these soldiers, and they said, hey, there's, there's General Sheridan. If he can come back, we're going to come back. So they turn around, and they defeat the, the Confederates. And Grant says it, too. Grant says he changed the defeat into that's right. a victory. That's right. Grant, and again, but here, you, here again, I think it's, that's exactly what Sheridan said, and that's what Grant, who likes Sheridan, says, too. Now, but the question is, did it actually happen? And we'll never know. But the point is that who got the credit? Who got the credit for all of this, for turning the tide of battle? It was Sheridan. Rienzi. Rienzi, yeah. <laughs> That's true. So in Cincinnati, miles, by the way. in Cincinnati, a few days after that yes. Harper's Weekly cover is published, a famous elocutionist performer named James Murdoch sees that newspaper with the picture. This I'll go back. Paper. Yeah, this paper. Yeah. And he goes to see his friend. Um, a man named Thomas Buchanan Reed, who was both an artist and a poet. Not of great stature, but of some popularity. And Murdoch thrusts the paper at him and, and says, there is a poem in that picture. Do it now. And according to legend, which is for people who care about Civil War art and uh, literature as I do, this is almost as dramatic as Sheridan's Ride. Um, <laughs> He goes into his room, spends two hours, and he comes out with this, which is, uh, this is an 1865 published version of Sheridan's Ride. But more than that, Thomas Buchanan Reed, who is completely forgotten today, manages to illustrate his own writing. This is the painting that he produced. It's a big painting. It may be about the size that you see it here. Mm -hmm. And he didn't just do one. There are seven or eight copies. One is in the Union League of Philadelphia. It's part of its famous collection. And it was published, adapted, stolen by other artists and printmakers. It was a sensation. And this, too, helped cement Sheridan's reputation. It was not news reports. It was the confluence and the moment and the sing-song version of the verses, which I will get to. Herman Melville, arguably a greater writer than Thomas Buchanan Reed, writes about Sheridan's Ride. He does a poem called Sheridan's Ride in his famous battle pieces of the Civil War. No one remembers what Melville wrote. Something about Reed captured captured the moment. Before we do the poem, I just want to talk, spend a few minutes. How are we doing? I know. I want to spend a few minutes about Sheridan's post-Civil War life because that is part of the complete story. And um, his Indian fighting, 
By the way, he was Grant's emissary to the Franco-Prussian War. Yes. He managed yeah. to witness yeah. the end of that. Right. Was he lucky or heroic or what? Let's he talk was, about the end of Sheridan's... I think he's in the right place at the right, right time, time for most of this. Sure, because he takes... You know, it's Grant is commanding general, then Sherman is commanding general, then Sheridan is commanding general. So he's, he is. I think you're right. He's in the right place at the right time. And interestingly, too, later on, he marries at the uh, age of 44... Um, and marries the daughter of the quartermaster general of the United States. Now, I don't know what the, what the wife was like, but the daughter of a quartermaster doesn't inspire you, to, but it inspired, certainly inspired Sheridan a great deal. And, and that's, that's who he marries. He has four children, and then he dies dramatically. Yeah, has this young. heart attack. Yeah, he was uh, young. He was yeah. very young. Died before Sherman, in fact. I have a post-war story I have to tell about Sherman. I, I'm, I shared it, and I just have to do it. So forgive me for this. One of the jobs that he got right after the war was to be the commander of military district number five, yes. which was Texas and Louisiana. And in that role, he was doing the progressive thing, what Lincoln, I think, would have liked. Mm-hmm. He was disqualifying Confederate uh, officers from voting. He was encouraging uh, registration of uh, freed uh, former slaves to vote. And, of course, he was extraordinarily unpopular in Texas. They hated his guts, and he hated them right back. (laughs) And during one interview, he famously said, if I owned hell and Texas, I'd rent out Texas and live in hell. That's right. right. I just had to tell that one. It's a great story. Uh, That's right. Let me let me increase the uh, tension about the poem by posing a few questions. Oh, my. So we have some good questions here. Um, did, this is a good question. Did slaves leave the Shenandoah Valley when the Union arrived, willingly? What happened to the enslaved people of the Shenandoah? Yeah, it, it, yeah that, that is a good question. And it, it, it generally depended, almost, not always, but almost always, when you hear about the Union Army coming into wherever it might be in the, in the South, the, the slaves would attach themselves to the Union Army, and try to get away. Now, that does not mean that every slave did, because some slaves maintained a loyalty to whoever their owners uh, might be at that, at that particular time. At, th- at this time, I don't know. I mean, I don't know for sure. I don't know if anybody's ever studied that. Uh, but the point is, is that when, when, when uh, Sheridan took slaves with him, the, 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 the black slaves with him, many of them followed. No question about this. I think we covered some of this. What happened to Rienzi after Sheridan's ride? Well, even, first of all, he got a name change, right? All right. Yep. In Winchester. Sheridan renamed him. Sheridan knows a good deal. When this yeah. poem comes out, <laughs> it hits the papers, and he's being lionized all across the North as the savior of the Union. Um, he changes the name of the horse, and the horse, stays, the horse eventually dies and is not stuffed, interestingly enough. They made a statue of him, a frame of him, skinned the horse, no. and put the skin on the statue. So it's not actually stuffed. It's no. hard and not knocked hard in there. Uh, but it's got We Rienzi's probably could skin. have lived without that detail. But, it, <laughs> but your knowledge is you very asked. impressive. You I did. Asked. No, this person, that's what oh, That's right. impressive. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's I didn't good, know that. Okay. I didn't know that either. Yeah, no. it's a disgusting no. story, but I didn't know that. <laughs> I got a million of them. For both of you. <laughs> so in the pantheon of Civil War generals... Oh. Reflecting on his successes, his failures, 
his great moment of personal triumph, where do we rate, where should we rate General Sheridan in that group? That's a great John, you start with that one. That, yeah, that is, that is a good question. I don't think, if you look at the whole Civil War, I don't think he ranks in the same league with, uh, with Grant and, and Sherman. But once you get past Grant and Sherman, and then you see what he did, not only tactically, but psychologically, I think he is. He is probably the third in line, because that's what happens after the war. He, he is third in line. Once you get into the 20th century, you, you still have some Civil War generals that are generals, commanding generals, but nobody's ever heard of them, really. Uh, so I would, I would rank him there. I wouldn't rank him with, uh, with Robert E. Lee, but I would put him in the same kind of the same league that uh, Stonewall Jackson was and the psychological impact that he had on his, uh, on his soldiers. Well, John... I love you dearly, but, but I disagree entirely. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. I think the reason he came out ranked so high is, again, he's in the right place at the right time. <clears throat> Timing is always very important. He got a promotion to the rank of major general in the regular army. Now, yeah. one of the things you need to know about the Civil War is that a lot of people got, got promotion, what they called brevet promotions. We're going to make you a major general. We're going to make you a, a lieutenant general. We're going to make you a fine. colonel. But that's just for the war. So and volunteers, too, volunteer. Uh, or in yeah. the volunteer yeah, service. Right. After the war is over, you revert. You know, George Armstrong Custer was a major general in the Civil War, but he's a lieutenant colonel when he's killed at Little Bighorn. So he reverted to his statutory rank. But after Cedar Creek, it made such an impact because of this poem, which we'll eventually hear, um, <laughs> that Lincoln personally promoted him to the rank of major general in the regular army. That made him the fourth overall behind only uh, Grant, Meade, and Sherman. Mm-hmm. And because of that, at age 33, 33, he's a fourth-ranking general in the whole United States Army, which means for sure he's going to become chief of staff of the Army because he's going to live long enough, these guys are all going to die, and he's going to run the Army, which is what happens in the 1880s, which is why he manages the Indian campaign. So I think he's lucky in that respect. I don't think he belongs... Uh, in that triumvirate where he's off in place, there's a famous stamp issue of yeah, 1936 yeah, yeah. that shows Grant, Sherman, Sherman and Sheridan, Sheridan, the three yeah. great generals of the Civil War. I wouldn't put him there. Where would, you pers- put, where would you put him? I'd put him in the top quarter of general. Wow, that's, that's tough. That is. Oh, You're a top rough. quarter. Tough grader. That's passing. Wow. Man. <laughs> I mean, being in the right place at the right time is, is good. It is and good. And it's fortunate. Yeah. But it he did good. make the most of it. He I made mean, the most of it, yeah. He, rode, yeah. he didn't yeah. ride away from the action. He rode toward it. Okay, well, it's an interesting... I, I think the judgment is, is... It's good that you guys disagree for once. You know, and you did it publicly. <laughs> Fill in one gap that probably belonged before we got to that point. Triumph of October 20th and the glory that accrues to him once... Thomas Buchanan, Reed, writes and right. paints. What does he do between October 20th and Appomattox? Ah. Where, where does he go? I think Appomattox is his brightest star, better yeah. than Cedar yeah. Creek. Yeah. Appomattox, he's very good. He actually cuts off Lee at Five Forks. Five right. Forks, yeah. That compels a retreat from Petersburg. He cuts him off again at Sailor's Creek. That means he can't escape southward and join with Joseph E. Johnson in North Carolina. He, he's, so he's trapped at Appomattox. And if... Sheridan hadn't been as aggressive and assertive as he had been during that critical week. I mean, if you are going to put him in the top triumvirate, it's for what he does during the Appomattox campaign. 
was I'm trying to think too. I can't remember who 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 it was that uh, that made this comment, but uh, said that when when uh, Sheridan won in the Valley, that was the end. There was no way that uh, Grant was going to lose at uh, Petersburg, mm-hmm. and you can argue that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's that's what makes the Civil War so so interesting. That even these fallen away Civil War people like Greg Simons, who now does World War II for heaven's sake. Uh, even he can, you know, make inane comments, and nobody cares. You know. <laughs> now, boys. Okay. Um, <laughs> to what degree was Sheridan responsible for training of the inexperienced men that he had, both in infantry and uh, in cavalry? Do we know? I mean, he basically. Again, I think it's a timing thing. By the time he gets yeah. command yeah. that's high enough, yeah. the training They're has trained. been taken place yeah. by the by the majors and the captains, and particularly by the sergeants, who made that a real army. I mean, one of the reasons we can feel bad for the people who were thrown into the cauldron of war in 1861 is nobody knew how to run a war this big and this massive and this sprawling. By 1863, 1864, by which time Sheridan has significant command, that training has taken place, and the experience has has magnified it so that he's got a pretty tough army already. Another interesting thing that, that, that sometimes comes up, uh, there are people who are just beginning to become important in the Union Army when the war ends. Mm. And you wonder, what might have been the case? Had the war lasted another year or had they started uh, a little bit earlier? Emory Upton might be a good, uh, mm-hmm. one good example of Pardon me? It was only a colonel at the time. At the time, right. He could have been an army commander. He could have. Probably. So, you know, you don't know. But, uh, but I, think, I think it's true. Sheridan was lucky enough to be at the right place at the right time. And that's not so bad. Right. Here's another question that leads me to think a little bit about the luck factor, and that is the guys who were foraging um, when, uh, when, when, when Sheridan comes back. Who were the more skilled of the soldiers at this point? The, the grunts were, were, we hear a great deal, I mean, this is a judgment call yeah. or not, that Confederates were more committed and maybe the Union troops better trained. Do you have any view on that? Yeah, I think, I don't think that's accurate because I think what's, what's happened, what, what, what you have happening in the American Civil War is you have two groups of Americans fighting against each other. Uh, the whole argument that, well, all the good officers stayed with the Confederacy, all the bad officers stayed with the Union, I don't think that necessarily, necessarily follows, uh, follows either. But I think in, in, in this particular case, the Confederates are being literally ground down. Grant is doing that. Sherman is doing that. Other uh, Union commanders are doing that. They're grinding down the, the, the people. And something we don't often talk about, but during the campaign with Grant is fighting Lee in Virginia, this is about the same time that, that Sherman is, uh, is making his move in the Atlanta campaign and the march to the sea, and a lot of people, a lot of Confederates are just running away. They're going back home. They're deserting. So you have, I think you have that issue. So I think at the end, I would think the Union Army is by far the stronger army. You can argue... Not, and, and I agree with that, and not just, and we do agree. So we do agree, we do see? Agree. 
Uh, not only in terms of overall power, because one of the things that Confederates like to say is, oh, you just outnumbered us. There were just more of you. Yeah. But I think the Union in 1864, at the time we're talking about now, the Union Army, man for man, was as good, as tough, at least as good and as yeah. tough as the Confederate Army. Yeah. Well, just, just to take one, one, one point that always struck me is you're a, you're a soldier in the, uh, in the Union Army. Let's say you're with, with Sherman. And you start in Chattanooga, and you start marching. You go from Chattanooga to Atlanta. Then you go from Atlanta across to the sea. Then you work your way up through the Carolinas into Virginia. That's a heck of a lot of walking, let alone fighting that has to go on. So, I mean, these, these, these people are amazing. And, and the, maybe the most interesting thing about it is they're all about my size, and I'm hardly a big guy. And that's the size they are. They're small people. They're not big. big well, the good people. news is that the other size was equally small. Yes, the other that's side, right. right. That's right. But they, they, didn't, they didn't survive as well. And yeah. they no, it's a good point. Yeah. No. So now imagine oh, me as no. James Murdoch. Okay, oh, let's go. Yeah, I don't have his voice. I apologize. I'm not going to stand up. But I'm just going to do a little bit of this. And you're going to have to take my word for it that it was Murdoch's Encore. He appeared for years with pictures and statues behind him, and he started this way. Up from the south at break of day, bringing to Winchester fresh dismay, the affrighted air with a shudder bore, like a herald in haste to the chieftain's door. The terrible grumble and rumble and roar, telling the battle was on once more, and Sheridan, 20 miles away. By the way, he wasn't. He was about 10 miles well, away. Um, still sprung from those swift hooves, thundering south, the dust like smoke from the cannon's mouth, or the trail of a comet sweeping faster and faster, foreboding to traitors the doom of disaster. Under his spurning feet, this is all about Rienzi, right? Under his spurning feet, the road like an arrowy alpine river flowed, and the landscape sped away behind like an ocean wind flying before the wind or the wind. And the steed, like a bark, fed with furnace ire, swept on with his wild eyes full of fire. But lo, he is nearing his heart's desire. He is snuffing the smoke of the roaring fray with Sheridan only five miles away. Hurrah, hurrah for Sheridan. Hurrah, hurrah for horse and man. And when their statues are placed on high under the dome of the Union sky, the American soldier's temple of fame, there with a glorious general's name, be it said in letters both bold and bright, here is the steed that saved the day by carrying Sheridan into the fight from Winchester 20 miles away. And I left out a lot of it. (laughs) But you can look it up online. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory. Or visit us at nyhistory.org.